Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, your weekly blend of motivation, encouragement, education, and insight into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in South Africa. Welcome to episode 9, Coffee Beans. On this week's episode, I was privileged to grab a post-call coffee and spend time chatting with Dr. Vindana Chibabai, a consultant clinical microbiologist at the National Health Laboratory Services at Charlotte McTaker. Dr. Vindana is passionate about education and training of healthcare providers in all areas of microbiology, in keeping with her role as a lecturer at the Wits University Health Sciences campus. Dr. Vindana has a keen research interest in antimicrobial resistance, antimicrobial stewardship, healthcare-associated infections, and invasive fungal infections. Her interests led her to create the Microbe Mail podcast, a medical podcast for the busy practitioner or medical students covering topics in microbiology, infectious diseases, and infection control. Dr. Vindana will share more about her podcast, but I want to encourage every person listening to the Dr. Coffee podcast to follow and subscribe to the Microbe Mail podcast as well. You can find all of the important links and resources in the show notes to this episode. And with heaps of episodes and resources uploaded already, you're bound to find something that helps you to be a better clinician. That leads me to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Flash Medisa. For this and other episodes, I'm pleased to announce that the Dr. Coffee podcast has partnered with Flash Med SA. Flash Med is a new type of medical study flashcard pre-packaged and formatted to assist you to be more effective as a student and ultimately help you to become a better doctor. Their pharmacology flashcards are the most efficient way to study farms. On each card, you can write down the indications, contraindications, side effects, mechanism of action and interactions of one or a whole class of medications. Memorize and quickly revise the most important information for each drug using the pharmacology flashcards for every exam. The flashcards are made of a thick, high-quality paper, which ensures that your cards remain in a good condition for years to come. The FlashMed Revision Sheet Notepad is ideal for summarizing the most important aspects of a disease or medical condition, such as pathophysiology of the disease, how to diagnose it, the management and treatment, and how it presents clinically as well as its risk factors. It's ideal for quick referencing, brushing up on old knowledge, and studying for exams. The Muscle Anatomy Notepad is every anatomy student's dream. Muscle anatomy is notoriously difficult to study for, but these flashcards make it easy to compartmentalize and memorize the origin, insertion, innovation, and action of every muscle in the human body. The cards come in an A6 size notepad, also made of a thicker paper to endure many revision sessions. And for those in clinical rotations or even junior doctors wanting to save a little bit of time and add a professional polish to their patient clerks, the clerking sheet notepad is the best guide for a structured patient history, examination, systems review, differential diagnosis, and management plan. It is every clinical healthcare worker's best friend. The double-sided and pre-formatted form gives you a concise, structured approach and ensures that you don't miss out on any vital aspect of the patient's care, whether it's their social history, their vitals, or any of the systems under physical examination. Besides being great for patient care, the clocking sheet notepad is also perfect for OSCE practice. All FlashMed notepads are printed using the highest quality paper and each set consists of 50 flashcards or pages. Made for students, by students, you can find FlashMed on Instagram at at FlashMedSA, all one word with no punctuation, and order direct from them via DM with nationwide delivery. I hope you enjoy using their products. 
Now, back to today's episode and our guest specialist, Dr. Vindana Chibabai. We discussed her journey in medicine and the path to specializing as a clinical microbiologist. I learned a lot from our conversation and I hope that you do as well. Without any further ado, here is Dr. Vindana Chibabai. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee podcast, Dr. Vindana Chibabai. Hi, Simon. Thanks so much for having me. It's a wonderful pleasure to have you today uh, on the podcast. So with all our guests, the very first question I ask them is where they graduated from medical school and where they did their junior doctor time. So I'm a Vitsi. Hey. I did my uh, undergraduate. Well, I call it undergraduate now because I'm past postgraduate. Yes. But I did my basic medical degree at Vits and I qualified in 2004. And junior time, I did my internship at Tepong and Clarkstorp Hospital Complex. Okay, I, so so Tepong is in Clarkstorp? Yes. Okay. So Tepong is the hospital. So it's very much like Helen Joseph and Rahima Musa. Okay. It's, it's two separated hospitals. Okay. So Tepong and Clarkstorp Hospital Complex. So shout out to anybody who's there this year. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my time fondly. And then at that time, we were one of the first groups. Well, firstly, we only had to do a year of internship then. Oh, so that was different from how it is now. And then the other thing is we were one of the first groups to do community service. Mm-hmm. So I had a year of community service and I did that at Helen Joseph Hospital and Trekima Musa Hospital, which okay. was so lovely. Um, and then I did a year of just MO time in pediatrics at Trekima. So I wasn't actually aware that it was as recent as that, that there was a change from one year of internship to two. And you said that that was also when they instated community service. So how did you feel during your undergraduate degree when they told you (laughs) you're now going to do a a community service year? So angry, of course, (laughs) because you're like, no, that's not what I signed up for. And I've already done six years of study. And you're kind of looking at your whole life ahead of you and thinking that's a whole other year of my life that they're taking away from me. But actually, in, in the long run, the experience that you get during your internship and your community service is is invaluable. You really can't explain, especially if you're going to be out on your own after that um, and managing patients by yourself. It's already, it's short if mm. you think about it, mm. even those two years. Was the year of internship as structured as the two-year program now where you have surgery rotations that you have to go through for three months, others for two weeks? Not so much, hey? Um So I remember that some of us, it depended on the hospital that you were at. And you didn't necessarily get to rotate through every single discipline during your year. It was a short year. Mm. Um, And probably also site dependent, right? Like if you had a greater surgical exposure, you did more time there. Yeah. Um, so certainly Cloudstorp and Sapong was pretty good in that you you had a pretty good overall through the bigger disciplines. Okay. So uh, when you were at medical school, were you part of any interesting clubs or societies? Did you do anything exciting? <laughs> uh, any notable achievements? Any awards that you won? No. So I was a pretty average student. I think I, I was one of those that worked too hard when I was in high school. So by the time I got to med school, I just wanted to get through medical school and enjoy the time that I was there. Okay. And socialize a little bit. Um, I was also so scared of failing. So... I worked hard when I had time to work hard, but no, I wasn't really part of any societies or, yeah. <laughs> so you did your internship one year and ComServe one year. That's right. And where from uh, where to from there? So as I said, I did one more year after that in pediatrics. That was MO time. And then after that, I got a registrar post in microbiology. 
wow, what a what a difference from pediatrics to microbiology. Why the switch? What what's uh, kind of sparked it for you? So during both internship, community service, and my MO time, I was exposed to a lot of infectious diseases. Being um, at peds, you would being be. at peds, you would be <laughs> exactly. Um, and this was a time where ARVs was just coming in still. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the children didn't have access to ARVs. TB treatment was very different at the time. We didn't have pneumococcal vaccinations. So oh, wow. there was a lot of pneumococcal meningitis coming in with the kids. I also spent in those two years a lot of time in the HIV clinics. So it was really nice exposure to infectious diseases from that perspective as well. And so that's kind of where my interest and passion sort of grew from. I can imagine that you kind of felt that you were uh, at the cutting edge of a new frontier. Absolutely. And that's why it kind of sparked something for you. Was it like there was an expanding of opportunities that people were stepping into? Not really. I must say uh, the, the other MOs that I was with all wanted to do pediatrics, whereas Although I was in pediatrics, I had more of an interest from the infectious diseases side. So looking back at the time, I thought, hey, I'm going to do microbiology and then I'm going to subspecialize in pediatric infectious diseases. That was the plan mm. at that time. So although I loved peds, um, the micro side of it or the ID mm. side of it kind of took over. So if I read you correctly, it's almost like being exposed to microbiology in peds yep. helps you to identify that this is actually where you want to go. And the lesson for any junior doctor or medical student is to be exposed to as much as they can, because that's how you will find what you are passionate about. Exactly. And if you think you've got an interest and you don't get the exposure as a student, you know, we're all quite open. I'm happy for someone to walk into the lab and say, no problem, I'll show you around. You know, come and spend a little bit of extra time if you've got in the lab. Spend some time with our registrars. We're happy to have you here. Wonderful. So we've touched a little bit on what microbiology is, but if you were to explain to somebody who has no understanding about what microbiology really is, or maybe to correct any misconceptions that you have encountered, what is the practice of clinical microbiology? So... The practice of clinical microbiology is from a diagnostic perspective. Okay. So as a clinician, you... And I hope I didn't misplace your role. Like I haven't, no. okay, I haven't picked you into the wrong box. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so as a clinician, you suspect that your patient has an infection, hmm. but you need to prove this. Hmm. So you'll be sending specimens to the laboratory. We will process those specimens and then we'll give you a result. So from a clinical microbiologist, we are different from the scientists and the technologists who we work very closely with. We're all part of the same team in the laboratory, but we're kind of that interface between pure laboratory diagnostics and the clinician who's managing the patient in the ward. So wow. we understand the lab side of it. And that's a lot of what you do during your registrar time. You've got to learn how to process specimens in the lab. You've got to learn how to manage the laboratory as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, but then you understand the clinical side, which is why we're medical doctors first. Yes. You understand the infection, you understand the patient, you understand the antibiotics, etc. And we're kind of the string that ties the lab to the patient or yes. the lab to the clinician. So you can understand the question that the clinician is trying to answer. Exactly. And direct your lab techs to, oh, no, no, don't do worry about that. I know where they're trying to go with this. Exactly. Uh -huh. So also looking, understanding from the clinical side. So one of the, our big, kind of pet peeves is that people don't put enough information on the laboratory request for really. So if you had written on the infection, um, infective endocarditis and I look at a plate 
in the lab and I say, hey, there's a Staphylococcus aureus on this. Yes. I'll say, hang on, this is really important because yes. they've said to me the patient's got infective endocarditis. I'll tell the registrars, go to that ward and see what's going on with the patient. Wow. So it's definitely getting kind of both sides of what's going on, tying it together. And I like to think of us as being detectives. We, we, we close the case is what yes. we do for you. How much of your time then would be patient-facing? Because you said you would send a registrar to the ward. So imagine that you do have some kind of mm. interface with, um, with the patients. Yeah. So that's one of the big misconceptions about microbiologists. People think that, you know, we kind of hide in, in an office or we hide in the laboratory. Um, and when I was thinking this morning, I was counting in my head how many ward rounds we have here at Charlotte as a microbiology department. We have nine ward rounds in oh, a five-day wow. week. Wow. So we have a lot of patient-facing interactions. Obviously, it's not directly with the patient themselves. It's through the clinician. But there are some days where we go up to three different wards on the same mm. day and have three separate ward rounds. So there is, if you want to have a lot more patient-facing face, time, that's up to you. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. And there are other, there are other microbiology laboratories um, which may not be um, based in a hospital itself, and perhaps they might have less time in the wards themselves. But we like to have that clinical interaction here, and so we have quite a bit. Do you ever get exposed to dangerous pathogens? Like, do you have to go and collect swabs from interesting places? <laughs> and, you know, you, you mentioned being a detective and microbes uh, are growing in all sorts of interesting places. Do you find that you have to go there like a detective and, you know, lift the specimen from here? So we're a clinical laboratory, so okay. which means that we only look at human samples. But there are other laboratories. So, for example, at the medical school, there's a public health laboratory. Um, but they also do the infection prevention and control audits. So when they do audits, they will go into an environment in a ward and perhaps swab um, uh, certain settings, etc. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's dangerous work as such. But mm. that, yeah, you need a specialized laboratory, which we do have as part of our complex, mm. um, which is specifically for environmental specimen testing. We do get involved in some dangerous work because, yeah. um, you know, about viral hemorrhagic fevers. Yeah. So if there was, let's say there was a Lujo, suspected Lujo lesser virus in the You've hospital, a, yeah. you would be the one on call uh, so you can examine this rash and say, is this actually... So we don't go to the patient themselves, <laughs> okay. but we're involved in the whole process yes. from a diagnostic perspective. Okay. So there's a whole SOP in place about how the clinician dons and offs the PPE, collects the specimen, and then there's a transfer from the clinician to the laboratory person who's also got to be donned in PPE. We will separate the specimens here, process whatever we need to hear, and then send away specimens to um, the NICD or where, you know, any reference laboratory that does that sort of thing. So, yeah, from our side, it's from the diagnostic perspective. So would there be a lot of um, kind of overlap with somebody who's working in infectious diseases? Absolutely. They're probably our best friends in the hospital. <laughs> we talk to them every day. Um, we also send them consults, you know, we, a clinician might be managing a patient and we think, hang on, they, they actually need to have a bit more help with this patient's management and we'll call ID and say, please go and have a look at this patient. Okay. We have ward rounds with infectious diseases as well um, and we go from ward to ward. So they might identify patients that are important for us to see. We identify patients, we, we want their input as well. Um, yeah, so they are based. So here's an opportunity for you to advertise Okay. okay. What is the best part of your job? You're wanting me to pick something. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long list. We could be here all night. 
Um, I really can't say that there's one specific thing. I, I love the detective work. I love the fact that we're solving puzzles every day. Um, I've been qualified for over 10 years now. Yes. I can promise you there has not been a single day where I can say I was bored in microbiology. Wow. The bugs are always one step ahead of us. Really? As much as you think, okay, I've figured out Pseudomonas aeruginosa, or I've figured out Staphylococcus aureus, they're one step ahead of us at every step of the way. Um, they're evolving all the time. Things are changing. Then there's things like pandemics. You know, we don't see those things coming. They kind of surprise you out of the blue. Even the VHFs, you never know when you're going to get one coming through. So definitely not boring. Mm. Um, there's always new stuff changing. Um, and I can't say that there's, you know, there's a, lim there's a limitless number of microbes that are actually out there. So even if you do think I know everything there is to know about E. coli, there might be a new pathogen that emerges. We know mm. that Candida auris emerged only in the last 10 years or so. Yeah. They've wow. existed before. Wow. So yeah, it's not an opportunity to get bored. <laughs> That's really, really interesting. I never really thought of that. And so do you find that you have to be really, really well-read and well-versed on all of these bugs? Yes, so that is something that you've got to do. James, to be passionate about these microbes. Absolutely, absolutely. But even if you're not, even if you're just passionate about a couple of them, your interest can grow just because of what you're exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis. So within microbiology, are you saying that there are people who are like staff specialists? Absolutely, yeah. Wow. So there's, there will be a staff specialist. You have mycologists who love fungi and nothing else, and they only want to do mycology. There's I was going to make a very bad joke about <laughs> a fun guy. A fun guy, but it doesn't matter because I'm a fun guy. <laughs> um, mycologists, there's parasitologists, there's a virologist who's purely virology as well. I'm sure they were very busy during COVID. They were, they were, shame. Yeah. I'm glad we had a separate virology department and it wasn't our problem. Um, but yes, if you really, really love a particular bug, you can absolutely go down oh, that route. That's fascinating. So what is the path to specialization? If somebody is listening to this podcast and they say, gosh, Dr. Vin's just hitting all the right notes and I'm really interested in following this and pursuing this as a career, uh, what is the road to specialization in microbiology? So as you would with any other medical specialty, you finish your basic MEBCH medical degree, you finish your internship community service, and then you've got to get a registrar post um, at any of the main universities in South Africa. It's the same as any other registrar time. It's about four years or so. Um, and you write a college exam through the College of Medicine of South Africa at the end of that to qualify as a medical microbiologist. Are there any kind of primaries or anything that you take before getting that reg post? Are there any courses that you would recommend somebody do? So you can't really write your primaries before you're in a reg post just because, remember, you're coming in as a clinician. You've mm -hmm. been trained as a clinician. Yeah. And as, as I said earlier, you've got to learn how to process specimens on the bench. You've got to learn in depth about all of the microbes, all the antimicrobials, et cetera. And you need to have that hands-on exposure before you write your part one. So there is an MMED part one, which mm -hmm. each of the universities has, Perfect. but you can only write that during your registrar time. You can't write that beforehand. So does somebody need to learn lab techniques uh, as a diploma? Do they need to get work exposure as an MO? How do they earn that right at the table, so to speak? Mm -hmm. So at the moment, the problem is there's no MO posts in, in any of the pathology fields, including microbiology. 
But um, there are some community service posts through the NHLS. So if you are interested during your, your final year or in your internship year, find out about those posts. It's one year where you can rotate through any of the specialties that you feel you've got an interest in. So if you have an interest in microbiology and hematology, you can do six months in each rotation. Decide which one, one of the two that you really like um, and, and follow it that way. Hmm. Um, in terms of other courses, as I said, there's so many microbes out there and they're all, they're all relevant. So there aren't specific courses, but there are, there are quite a few TB courses. There's the HIV diploma. Um, I'm thinking of like the diploma of uh, tropical medicine. Yeah. So I was going to mention that one as well. So that's the uh, diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene. The DTMNH is also on offer. There's quite a few antimicrobial stewardship courses available, some based at hospitals, others online. Uh, any TB courses? And those are only really courses you can do after you've completed internship because you need to have an MP number to further your education, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. So um, if somebody had done those uh, those courses and they've done six months of MO time, mm -hmm. what sorts of um, places will have uh, reg, reg time? You said all the major medical universities. Right. I imagine you wouldn't be able to do reg time out in like, let's say, Kharip. Uh, no. In rural free states. Unfortunately not. But remember, there's a there's a laboratory anywhere you go. Okay. So say, for example, you in your community service time, find a laboratory and spend some yes. time in that laboratory learning about microbiology while you're there just to get some exposure. But the actual registrar time only at the big universities. So besides having nine ward rounds in a five-day work week, mm -hmm. What does a typical week look like um, for a microbiologist? How do you divide your time and what are your responsibilities like? So it's a busy day and it's a full day. So unlike your clinical time where you do your woodwork and unless you're uncovered, you kind of go home. Here, you, you're kind of here for the full day. You know, you, you're here at half past seven or eight o'clock in the morning and you'll only leave at four or 4.30 in the afternoon. And there's a lot that we do. So the first thing is that we've got to check all of the benches in the laboratory for critical specimens or critical wards. It's just defined for our audience, what is a critical specimen or a critical ward? What so a critical specimen would be something like a blood culture, a cerebrospinal fluid, a tissue or fluid specimen that might have been collected from an ICU. So a critical ward would be an ICU, oncology, transplant units, those kinds. Of I see. Ideas, so it's more right? like the urgent cases that need your attention, they can't wait. They can't wait, exactly. So we start our day looking at all of those specimens. And so the registrars will have from the registrars somebody who's allocated on blood cultures. And that person looks through all of the blood cultures. They check the plates. They check the cards. Wow. They check the susceptibility. I thought that was all done by machines now. No, no. So the technologists on the bench will read the plates but we've, so in the morning, the technologists will come into work. They'll pull out everything that's come out of the automated machines, but then they've got to marry that to the clinical case. Mm. So they take the cards, they take the ID, they take the AST, and they put that together. And then we've got the registrar who will look at the two and say, does this make sense? Does it fit together? Is there anything I need to troubleshoot? Like, does something not make sense with this case? And they'll do all of that troubleshooting. And then like you would have a ward round in the wards, we have a blood culture bench round. So that's where the consultant will sit with the registrars, will go through all of those blood cultures that are significant from each ward. We'll have a discussion about them. Um, we'll decide based on the clinical case scenario, based on the patient population, based on the organism, the antimicrobial susceptibility pattern that we're seeing, 
what are we going to recommend that they treat with? So there's a lot more work is that goes more? into putting out that lab track report that we get. Yeah, then, then it looks like yeah. the surface. And then once we've had that blood culture around, the registrar will then communicate all of these critical results or uh, significant results to the clinician, either by making a telephone call, having a discussion with you as a clinician on the phone, or we'll walk out to the wards and make a note in the file, depending on where you are and what the situation might be. Wow. So that's one aspect. Then remember, that's only blood cultures. We've got blood cultures, CSF specimens, stool specimens, pus, urine, whatever must... So is there uh, a different tissue. person assigned to each different... No, so we don't have that many people <laughs> in the lab we'd like to. There is on the benches, so each bench processes a sample type. But from the registrar's side, they've got to split the work. So wow. it's usually one person doing all of blood cultures, and then depending, one or two other people who will do all the authorizing. So authorizing is taking each of those cases that are positive, looking at the organism the susceptibility pattern, the patient population, the ward, da, da 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 and you then decide, I'm going to show the clinician um, amoxicillin for them yes. to treat this particular specimen. So I can imagine there's um, like little buzz points during the day when you discover some interesting cocoa that's <laughs> <laughs> cultured somewhere. You're like, wow, I really didn't expect that. Do, do you have little eureka moments in the lab? Oh, them? yeah, all the time. Come look at <laughs> what this culture Exactly, exactly. Like stool bench. If we see a parasite, like the whole war, the whole lab, everybody comes and, and looks under the microscope. And, and half of the audience's stomach just turns <laughs> okay. at the thoughts. <laughs> of a stool specimen. Let me change that. With, with parasites <laughs> writhing. In, oh. Okay, you can delete that bit, Simon. <laughs> if you see a fun, fun guy that we actually <laughs> see under the microscope, everybody will have it together. Sure. So that's all the lab stuff, but that's only one component of the job. Yeah. Then there's, as I said, clinical water rounds where we have infectious diseases rounds where we're interacting based on complicated infectious disease cases or some of them are antimicrobial stewardship ward rounds. Mm. We, we will go bed to bed on anybody who's on antibiotics and discuss whether it's appropriate or not appropriate and make, it, make suggestions on or recommendations on stopping or changing or whatever it might be. That's two. Three um, is lab management, as I said. As a laboratory, we have to subscribe to... ISO standards on quality management systems. So the pathologists are always involved in that aspect of it. And then there's research. Things are changing, evolving all the time. We've got to make sure that we have our own local research um, outputs. And not just generating research, but also following up on research. You know, there's a lot to read, I'm sure. There's a lot to read. And my, my to-read list folder is probably bigger than any other folder. And it doesn't matter how much I'm reading, it's, it just never gets any smaller. Uh, on, on that, that takes me kind of down a little rabbit hole because all of medicine, there's so much reading and there's burgeoning information um, all the time. Uh, do you have any ways that you speed up your reading? Do you use any tools that you can recommend that make reading easier? Or do you find that you learn better by just sitting down and thoughtfully, word by word, reading through a document? So I will read through an abstract first before I read through an entire paper. And I suppose I've read enough now that I can say I can skip through certain sections of a paper. So I of, often will not read the whole introduction. Um, you know, I'll just read what the aims are. The methodology, I feel, is quite important because you need to interpret the results that you're reading in a paper. And then I always find the discussion very, very useful. So there'll, there'll be certain sections of the paper that I might skip through. Mm. But I will start with an abstract. And if I if I find that from the abstract certain things 
uh, scream out to me that this is a, a, an important paper, then I'll continue reading. But I don't read every single paper from start to scratch. There just isn't time for that. Mm. Okay. Um, and then if you're reading reviews, which I think a lot of the juniors would want to do, you may not read actual studies themselves, but you might be reading reviews. I think just look for reviews that are from really good journals, high-impact journals, so that you can trust the information that's in there. Are there any uh, microbiology journals uh, that you would recommend or any sources that you suggest that uh, junior doctors stay, stay up, to, uh, up to date with? So... From the South African perspective, there's the Southern African Journal of Infectious Diseases. Really nice. There's, there's lots of local data and lots of local publications. Um, it's a very good source of information there. They've also been publishing guidelines, and they're local guidelines. So, for example, the Candida auris um, Diagnosis and Treatment, which is specific to our setting, written by a group of South African experts. Mm. You'll find it in Sajid. Um Others would be the American Society of Microbiology. They've got a number of different journals, depending on, you know, kind of what area you're looking at, whether it's antimicrobials or whether it's microbiology specifically. And then from a European perspective, there's ECMIT, which is the European Society for Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. Their journal, they've got two, clinical microbiology and infection would be one of them. The other is the European Journal of Diagnostics. <laughs> you can't remember that one. Yeah, it doesn't you know what <laughs> It doesn't know. So the two journals. Yeah. So they yeah, there are quite a few journals, mm. which are quite nice. Mm. Um, on the FITSA website from South Africa, that's the Federation of Infectious Diseases Societies of South Africa, they've got quite a few um, links to um, where you might find important or useful information. Um, and and I, I also like listening to podcasts. So I think there's a lot of podcasts out there that you can listen to that that give you good information. And you missed a very <laughs> very good opportunity to promote your own podcast, which already okay. has dozens of episodes. <laughs> uh, I was waiting for you to throw in there the, you know the micro the micro male <laughs> podcast. I was um, waiting for you to. We we uh, you know you you do touch on a, a number of things and you interview guests about um, clinical microbiology and beyond. Uh, tell us a little bit more about microbe mail. Okay, so because of the fact that I thought there is this huge lack of information from South Africa and generally the low middle income setting when it came to podcasts, I kind of had this light bulb moment sometime last year and I said, now I'm starting my own podcast. So it's an educational podcast in microbiology and infectious diseases. Um, it really deals with day-to-day -day issues that a clinician might encounter. Um, in your daily practice, and it's also a kind of a conversational thing. So it's not overwhelming like listening to a webinar where it's very formal and you know mm. get overwhelmed with information. It's 20 to 30 minutes long. I'm having a chat with another expert. We cover things that we have discovered clinicians have a problem with or medical mm. students are struggling with. I see. So you don't feel at the end of the episode that you're completely overwhelmed. Um, so the types of episodes we've had... Um, source searching with Professor Guy Richards, which is excellent if you're trying to look for a source of sepsis in your patient. Professor Duzay has done everyday do's and don'ts in infection prevention and wow. control, things like, is this culture a contaminant? So that, that's actually really practical. Exactly. That's yeah. that's not, I mean, you initially I thought, oh, right, this sounds really theoretical, but there's implementation there. There's Absolutely. stuff that you can listen to an episode and go, oh, from now on, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. Exactly. And then one of my favorite more, more recent episodes, and we try and keep it light, as I said, is Goldilocks and the Course of Antibiotics. <laughs> not too short, not too long, just right. So we talk about the Course wow. of Antibiotics and how long is long. 
Yes, because antibiotics stewardship is obviously such an important topic right now. Exactly. So uh, it's available on any podcast platform anywhere in the world. So whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, but Microbial also has a website. So if you want to, you can listen directly to the episodes on the website as well. Excellent. Um, and so I've got a sign up page on the website as well. And what's oh, wow. nice about signing up is I don't spam people. I don't have time to spam anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll get an email when there's a new episode that's been released. Um, and for each episode, I also create a little infographic, which is a summary of important information that was discussed in that episode, which is a nice little pocket guide that you can keep with you if you need to refer back. That's amazing. And you'll get those infographics if you sign up um, on the website. That's fantastic. And I really hope the listeners take that opportunity. Like take that, pause, push pause on this podcast, go over to MicroMail and avail yourself of that because that sounds fantastic. It's clear that you have a, a passion for this and you want to educate, but also that you want to help people. So that's that's wonderful, and I'm I'm only too happy to to see that grow. I really I really hope that our listeners avail themselves of that. Now Simon. I'm going to circle back okay. to antibiotic stewardship right. because that's something that I've seen firsthand is importance in the clinical space. Exactly. Uh, and are there new medications coming out? Because you said the bugs are always changing. They are. So antimicrobial resistance is a huge problem, and it's it's actually one of my areas of interest from both a clinical perspective and a research perspective as well. So I do a lot of antimicrobial resistance and antimicrobial stewardship research. Um, and the problem is that, you know, the WHO said by 2050, 10 million people per year are going to be dying from antimicrobial resistance. But in 2019, they did a study, well, it was only published in January this year in The Lancet, which actually showed that in 2019 already, 1.2 million deaths were attributable to antimicrobial resistance, mm. but 4.95 million deaths were associated with antimicrobial yes. resistance. So it's a huger problem than we realize. So they first. Exactly. So we really need to get this message out. It is a massive, massive problem. From, I think, 54 or, or even more molecules that have been investigated over the last 15 years, only seven of them have come into the clinical setting. In South Africa, this year, we're getting launches of two new gram-negative uh, active agents, but we haven't for for years. Yeah, I think probably at least the last 10 years, we haven't had new agents coming in. And the problem is that the new agents are very specific, so they're very niche. So it might only affect a very small group of isolates. Um, they're not kind of big guns like when miropenem mm. and imipenem were first launched, you know, kind of treated everything. Napalm. <laughs> exactly. So the resistance is so, so severe at the moment that you have to, it's almost precision medicine if you think about it. Who's the right patient? Who's the right bug that you can give this one little antibiotic to? It's yeah. becoming very tricky, but more than tricky, it's scary. I'm sure there's lots of um, content around this topic on your podcast. So I don't want to steal, um, <laughs> steal time away from that because people should go to your microbiome podcast and listen. Um, so let's talk about microbiology again. Um, what are some of the um, pitfalls or negatives that you might have experienced through the course of specialization? Um, any hurdles that you've had to overcome mm -hmm. in microbiology? Tell us about that. So I think my, my registrar time was a long time away, so I'm not sure that I remember as clearly then, but I can give you some ideas from seeing registrars coming through now. And I think one of the biggest problems is that sometimes people come into the field thinking 
this is an easier specialization mm. because you don't have those long overnight calls. And so you've got more sociable hours in terms of your work, but it's not in any way easy at all. As I said, again, you've got to know all the microbes, all the antimicrobials, all the syndromes, and you've got to know how each of these applies in the different patient populations. Um, there isn't really leaving early because you've got so much of work to do for the whole day. So that, I think, is one of the biggest uh, problems. So knowing how to juggle your time so that you are able to work a full day but still have enough time to go home and read. Um, and you're going to have to use your weekends as much as you don't work as many nights and weekends as you would in a clinical setting. The point is that that time is there for you to catch up on reading, etc. Um, so, Dr. Ben, if I was to ask you, what is your message to medical students and junior doctors about microbiology? What, what lasting um, impacts do you want to make on them through this podcast? So I think one of the important things for everyone to understand is that microbiology is really important. And I don't know if that message gets across in medical school, and I don't know if that message gets across even in the clinical setting. If you think about it, Simon, there's hardly a discipline out there that escapes infections, right? Any discipline that you go into, you're going to see patients develop some or other kind of infection. So it's really important for your medical students listening to know that it's not something you should be brushing over. You probably in each discipline will see 30 to 40% of your patients seeing infections. Mm. So you need to understand the microbes, learn them well, learn your antibiotics well. Um, and I mean, I understand that your time's limited as a student, but don't take what you're given by the lecturer at face value and say, well, this is all I need to learn. Go out there, read some more, add to your notes. And then at the end of the year, don't burn those notes. Keep them as reference. Yes. And then also refer back. So when you're in the clinical setting, when you're in the wards and you've got a patient with an E. coli UTI, go back to your notes. Read about E. coli again. Read about the the antibiotic that you've had to give the patient. Because I, I promise you, as you go further along in your career, and you have less and less time to do that. So catch up when you're when you've still got the time and yes. when it's fresh in your mind. So for Very medical students, I think that's really, really important. And then for the junior staff, whether you go into microbiology as a career path or not, again, I think don't underestimate the importance of microbiology and where the world is going in terms of, one, climate change. We're going to be seeing pandemics rolling you know, over the next couple of decades and I don't need to convince your listeners of that. It's been two and a half years and the WHO has announced two pandemics, mm. um, that of COVID and now the soon-to-be-named monkeypox, um, renamed monkeypox pandemic. It's going to be renamed? Yeah, they're looking at a better name so that oh. it doesn't prevent stigmatization, particularly for the African continent, that, I see. that, it, that it, it might be associated with um, people coming from the African continent, as there was with the Omicron wave, um, with COVID, yes, uh, kind of locked the borders, kind of shut, down, shut yeah. down for South Africa. So they're wanting to do something similar so that it's non-stigmatizing. Okay. So, yeah. So climate change is coming. Antimicrobial resistance, we said, is a massive, massive problem. Um, and also, again, as I said, the bugs are evolving all the time. You're going to need to know and you're going to need to keep up, whether you do microbiology or whether you go into some other discipline. So... Um, what is some of the pet peeves that mm -hmm. the microbiologists have? Like, are we collecting specimens wrongly? Like, well, <laughs> yes. The, the short answer, yes. yes. Well, okay, what's the long answer? The long answer is we have a lot of work to do together. Yes. 
And we understand that we shouldn't be working in our sana and neither should clinicians. And it's something, everything requires teamwork. And we need to sort of bridge the gap. That's actually when the first episode in Microbe Mail is called Bridging the Gap hmm. between the bench and the bedside and how we can interact better together so for the patient's benefit. So starting from how you request the specimen, how you collect the specimen, how you get it to the laboratory, um, and from our side, how we um, communicate with you timelessly or process appropriately. Wow, I, li I love the alliteration as well, bridging the gap between bed and bench. That's awesome. So what does the next 10 years hold for microbiology in general um, or maybe within the South African context? If somebody wanted to start a career now in microbiology, what, what would it look like in 10 years' time? So as I said, you're not going to be bored. We're expecting that there'll be more pandemics coming and those are going to be surprises at any point. We can't really predict what's going to happen. Second, very exciting from a diagnostic perspective, there's a lot changing. Um, remember, for the last 100 years or so, we've been doing MCNS, and it's all been mm. culture-based. Mm. That's changing recently. There's a lot more molecular diagnostics that are available. We're even moving to sequencing for certain um, pathogens and wow. certain clinical syndromes. And so you can imagine that there's going to be big data available for all of these things. Now is that, that's not just viruses. That's also bacteria. Bacteria fungi. as well. So we send fungi that we cannot identify through our normal phenotypic means for sequencing so well, we can get the identification that way. So they'd actually sequence genomes of all these different fungal species and they could say, oh, it's within this genus and it's this subspecies. Wow. Exactly. Um, is that an expensive investigation? It oh, is expensive, okay. but I think they're trying to build up capacity so we can offer it. So what we might find in the, in the next 10 years is that, like all technologies, it starts out expensive but it gets cheaper and cheaper. So it'll become more commonplace to, instead of doing a microscopy culture and sensitivity and MCNS, because some people mm -hmm. don't know what MCNS means, mm -hmm. um, instead of growing something in a Petri dish for three days, uh, you're going to rather just sequence it mm -hmm. because you can get a result in a couple of hours. Exactly. So that's exactly what happened with, with TV, Simon. I think you, 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 you and the listeners probably are too young to know that before we didn't have Gene Expert, we didn't have any PCR-based diagnostics for TB. It was all culture-based, and you had to wait the six weeks to get your wow. result. Where now the tables have turned. And, and could, you, could you start, I mean, TB drugs have all kinds of side effects. So could you start TB treatment before you had the six? Oh, okay. Yes, so, so you make the same judgment, yeah. But then you would have this long wait before you could confirm the diagnosis and all of the problems associated. Okay. I was just thinking about all the ethical considerations of a possible dilly, uh, <laughs> drug-induced liver injury. <laughs> and not having uh, a diagnosis. Correct. Exactly. Okay so, okay, so that's some of the stuff. What else over the so, next 10 years? Yeah, the other thing with diagnostics is that there's this move to laboratory automation, which is not new in the world. In fact, in, in the US and in Europe, a lot of the laboratories have total automation. Um, in South Africa, the private laboratories have, have automation as well, but it's not something that's, that's um, really taken off in the public sector yet. So if you could get to laboratory automation, that's another exciting change. What are the strengths of automation and what are the weaknesses? So the strength of automation would be that it functions 24 hours a day. It would be faster than manual processing. Also, the sad thing is that there are fewer and fewer people who are coming into the pathology fields or laboratory medicine as technologists and technicians. So we're constantly short-staffed and we're straining the resources that we have in the lab by expecting a fewer number of people to process more and more samples. Mm. So you get away with that from automation. The cons of automation, typical with any kind of technology, you're going to have breakdowns, maintenance, 
uh, electricity dependent, <laughs> exactly, load shedding. Um, yeah, the, the usual problems. Uh, and how good is the technology? I mean, does a human eye need to come and kind of corroborate everything that's said? Or? So they've got different systems available where you can have a pre-authorization kind of pre -authorization session. Um, so there's automated plate reading, for example. Um, but you can go in as a technologist or as a pathologist and say, I'm just going to have a quick squiz through each of the plates, make sure nothing was missed. Okay. Um, and that you would do digitally because it's all within the automated system. So it's like the role of AI, you know, like yeah. in radiology, they speak about AI uh, sifting through x-rays for the radiologist. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a move towards that as well. Okay. Anything else coming up in the next 10 years you can kind of predict, look into your crystal ball and think what might happen within my <laughs> So again, AMR is a huge thing. So lots of... AMR is? Antimicrobial resistance and antimicrobial stewardship. Um, as I said, the next 30 years are critical. So I see a lot of research in That's that our area. generation. Hey? That's your generation. You guys are the guardians of the antibiotics, the few antibiotics that we have available that are working. So a lot of research, I think a lot of education, surveillance um, is coming in that, that, that field. And TB, HIV, malaria are still massive problems globally. Mm. So I still see a lot of work in those fields. And, and specifically in South Africa and Sub-Saharan exactly. Africa, I mean, that's the hotbed of, of TB, HIV and, and malaria. And those are, if I remember correctly, are still within the top, uh, certainly within the top 20, but maybe within the top 10 killers globally. Yeah. Yeah, and add to that now the antimicrobial resistance as well, wow. which is also a huge problem in sub-Saharan Africa. Interesting. So there's actually a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work there's to be done. There's a lot of space. You, you, there will be work for microbiologists <laughs> in the next 30 years, I can guarantee. <laughs> Fantastic. So we're reaching the uh, concluding portion of this interview. Uh, is there anything that I haven't covered, anything that you like just burning to get out there to our audience? Yes, so microbiologists are lovely people. Okay. We are people people. <laughs> <laughs> so just, yeah, if you're managing a patient and you're not sure, rather than thumb sucking and, you know, doing the wrong thing, pick up the phone and give us a call. We will be more than happy to have a chat with you about your patient. Or take a walk and come down to the lab and, and come and have a face-to-face -face chat with them. Is there a place for having a microbiologist on call in an internal medicine or a surgery department? Just having a number on the wall, like, this yeah, is your absolutely. microbiologist. So there are there are call phones that so sort of the okay. yes, and I know that the other major departments that have the academic departments certainly mm -hmm. that have registrar rotations, they all have a call phone. So just find out what the call phone number is. Um, if not, um, there are central laboratory phone numbers where you can actually phone the lab and ask wow. to speak to someone. Well, we've reached the end of this interview uh, session for this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for sacrificing your time to be with us, Dr. Vin. I think that the listeners have really gained benefits. I know I certainly have. My understanding of microbiology, not only as a clinical discipline, but also as a, uh, something that we need to take seriously, even if we're not going to be microbiologists, has really been enriched, really been helped. I will tune into microbe mail specifically about infection prevention and control. I think that's something that I've seen the importance of. So I'm going to start there and see what rabbit holes are going down. So thank you again for appearing on the Dr. Coffee podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. It was great to be here, Simon. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the platform you've given to microbiology. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who don't know, and I hope more people learn about it um, through this podcast. I do, and, I do too. And thanks for the platform in uh, allowing me to talk about microbe mail as well. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. 
Full links to websites and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, FlashMed SA. If you know of a consultant or senior registrar in a specialty that you would like featured on the Dr. Coffee podcast, please get in touch. The podcast's email address is drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's drcoffeeza with no punctuation marks. We're also on Instagram and YouTube with the username at drcoffeeza. If you've got anything else in your mind, such as a request for additional topics, further information on how to engage with our guests, feedback on the show, or anything else, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you.